If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring, so guard yourselves in the Spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says, The Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Good morning. Uh, We are going to continue our series in Malachi, and I want to start off by just saying some things that I hope that you know, but if you don't know, are worth hearing, but not just worth hearing, but actually uh, absorbing into your being, because that's really what we hope in this series. Uh, God's desire is this. God's desire is to bless all the peoples of the earth. There's not one person on the earth that he does not want to bless. In fact, uh, in many ways, all the peoples of the earth right now are being blessed. I mean, the sun is shining, uh, food is coming from the earth. In most places, the, are, the air is breathable, the water is drinkable. Uh, the, wor- the, the world is not spinning off of its axis until some abyss. Uh, there's common grace. Uh, Paul tells us in, uh, in the letter to uh, the Colossians that, he, that God holds the, the world together by his hands. He is actively blessing uh, people right now, but he wants to bless us more than that. He wants to bless us with more than food and more than clothing and more than a nice 80-year window. He wants our hearts to be free. He wants to break us free from sin and death, and he wants to enrich our life with every spiritual blessing. He wants us to have these things, and he blesses us through something called covenant, through a promise, a promise which he gave to Abraham, which was fulfilled in Christ and now belongs to the church. And and covenant is a really important idea uh, in the Bible and in in this book, Malachi specifically. It's God's commitment. A covenant is God's commitment to bless us, to work for us uh, and give us life and hope. Now, it's really important to understand that he didn't have to do this. Like there's no external pressure on God to bless you. There's no external pressure on God to bless us. There's no law stipulating that he must redeem um, friends of God, much less rebels of God, which all of us once were. And yet he chose to do this. He chose to bless us at great sacrifice of his own life. He graciously determined to enter a covenant with his own people by snatching us and protecting us from the powers of hell, 
but more than that, but by leading us to still waters and leading us to green pastures, which begs the question, okay, if this is such a good deal, okay, what's our part? That's God's part. What's our part? What, what are we supposed to do? Well, we're meant to believe, to simply believe. There are no religious hoops to jump through. There are no spiritual mountains to climb. We are only to believe. If someone makes a promise, I'll do this next week, I'll do this next month, your, your part of that promise is to believe that, or not believe, but or to believe it, to receive the good of that promise, you believe it. Now, in believing, that does put us on a course of action. If we believe that God is the creator of our souls, so if we believe that in him is life, that in him is blessing, that in him is love, that will lead us to do what he says. And there's a word for that. It starts with the letter O. It's called Obedience right? It's a word we don't like, but that's what it means. It means that we obey him, that when he makes a promise to bless us, when he commands us to do something, to obey is to be blessed. To obey is to be blessed. To not obey is to turn off the spigot to God's blessing, because after all, that's what God wants to do in your life. Through his covenant, through his his dealings with us, he wants to bless you. And as we trust him and we obey what he says. It's not an issue of performance, meaning that we don't obey him to earn something. So it's not an issue of performance. It's an issue of trust. Is God worthy of our trust? Is is what God's saying really, really true? It's trusting in his goodness and power. So it's like this. It's like if I was to write you and give you a $10 million check, and let's just assume for a moment I'm good for it. I'm not good for it but let's just assume that I am good for it. If I was to write and give you this $10 million check, what would your response be? Why are you always telling me what to do? Don't tell me to go to the bank. I'll do what I want to do. That wouldn't be your response. You would, you, you, I mean, you would take the check. Hopefully you'd say thank you. I mean, after all, I just gave you $10 million. <laughs> but after saying thank you, uh, you might skip all the way to the bank and you would not mind that I told you to go to the bank. Disobedience to God is just like that. He's writing you a $10 million check, and your, our response in disobedience is, why are you always telling me what to do? Wait, no, no, no. He's, he's, he, yeah, he's telling you something to do. He's commanding you to do something but his commands are for our good. They're not arbitrary. They're not self-serving, but they're designed to enhance our life. They're designed to bless our life. He wants to bring goodness to us. He wants us to be strengthened. He wants us to, to be, he wants us to flourish. So God pleads with us to not walk in disobedience because what he requires for us is for our good and their grace to us. God's laws and demands are not a collection of wearisome orders, like from a drill sergeant, you know, like telling us to, you know, drop and give me 20. That's not how God is. It's not like he's just commanding us to do these arbitrary self-serving things because he can. And oh, by the way, he can. But he's saying these things to bring blessing into our life, to bring goodness into our life. And by God's grace, if you can settle this, not just in your mind, but in your heart, man, I'm telling you, your, your life is going, to, is going to take a sharp turn and up and to the right on the, on the chart here. The directory of your life is going to be amazing. And that's why we're in this series. This series is about 
experiencing renewal, but there are barriers to renewal. And those barriers are put up by our own disobedience or put up by our own heart that God is wanting to, God is wanting to bring blessing into our life. God is wanting to bring good things into our life. He's wanting to bring wholeness into our life. But it's our own willful disobedience, again, that turns off the spigot to that blessing in God's grace. He wants us to return away from our disobedience and return to our obedience so that we can experience renewal. And so the prophet Malachi speaks a word from God to his people to show them where they are breaking God's covenant, where they are falling off track, not trusting him, putting up barriers to God, therefore putting up barriers to renewal. And as these barriers come up in our life, the reason why they come up into our life is because we don't hold fast to his word. So we, you know, we were regularly want to encourage, you know, Bible reading and, and encourage you to get into a small group where you can discuss the scriptures and see how they apply to your life. That's why we regularly come together like this morning to hear teaching from the Bible and to hold fast to what the Bible says, because it's when we begin to let go or where the ministry of God's word um, is, is loosened in our life. That's when we begin to, we're susceptible to uh, spiritual malnutrition. And when spiritual malnutrition comes into your life, your eyes begin to blur and you can't see the goodness of God and you begin to trust and you begin to, to back away. And, and my prayer, which was Paul's prayer uh, to the Ephesians, is that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened so that they could see the goodness of God. And that's my prayer for all of us. It's a prayer for myself. It's a prayer for my family. It's a prayer for you. That the eyes of our heart, see our eyes, we don't see with these eyes. We see with the eyes of our heart. And I pray that those would be enlightened so we can see the goodness of God. And so last week, we looked at the, the barrier of careless worship. It's where, you know, the, the complaint of God was that they were bringing in the, the lame animals, the three-legged goat, the sick ones, the scrawny ones, and coming in with their leftovers, and, and God had, God's, God's complaint wasn't like, hey, I need good sheep because I'm running low on cash or there's, you know, I need some food to eat. He doesn't need anything from us. But he's saying, you're not, you're not valuing me. You're not bringing your best to me. You're just kind of, you know, you're, you're kind of showing up the services and kind of going through the motion, your routine, but, but your speech, your thought, your attitudes is not lining up with the wonder and the goodness of God. And that's preventing you. That's preventing you from receiving Blessing from God. And this week, the text shows us three relational temptations that Israel was falling prey to that all have to do with broken relationships. And the first one we read about in verse 10 is just our general relationships, people in your community group, people you serve alongside. Offense was being built up with through just general relational uh, brokenness. In verse 11 through 12, Malachi gets very specific and talks about marriage to unbelievers. The last line of Malachi uh, uh, 2 verse 12, it uh, says that Judah had married the daughter of a foreign god. It means that many men were marrying um, uh, women who were not true believers in the God of the Bible. And they lost sight of who God's word was and they stumbled. And this was very serious in God's eye. And then finally, he deals with the issue of divorce. And I believe, as, just as I was praying for this morning, I really believe God really wants to help some people today. And as I read through these passages and studied them and prayed through them, I just saw God really strengthening uh, the backbone, like our backbone, like your backbone. Like in, and when you have your, if you have uh, some back issues and it, maybe it's curvy, like you get, 
your back strengthened. You can stand taller. You can stand uh, straighter. And here's the good news. It will relieve pain. It will alleviate pain. And I believe God wants to alleviate pain in your life, alleviate past pain, present pain. And here's, what, and here's the really good news, future pain. Oftentimes, we focus on the past pain in our life and the present pain of our life. But there is a future pain that comes from running from the blessing of God. And my hope today is that we would turn from running from God's blessing to run toward God's blessing so that we can experience renewal. So first of all, Malachi uh, addresses our general relationships. And we all have broken relationships in life. And so some of you may be a nasty job situation. You know, you got fired or you want to be fired or you want someone else to get fired or, you know, something with your boss or, you know, you just avoid certain people at work or you had a, you know, business partner that went bad or, you know, there's roommates. Uh, you know, it's hard being roommates. You know, you, you had a roommate once and you don't talk to them anymore. And so there's issues there. And I can, I'm, I relate to that. I mean, I just remember in college, I mean, I just fought with um, roommates, all, especially this one roommate, fought with them all the time. And I, we, I remember one legendary series of arguments is we used to fight over who would answer the phone. Because like when I was in college, you know, you, you, the phone wasn't in your pocket, but it was actually like stuck to the side of a wall. And it had like this little squirrely line attached. Anyway, so you had this phone on the wall and it would ring and you'd be watching TV or playing a bit, whatever. Um, studying. I mean, you'd be studying, and and the phone would ring, and it, and and you would argue over who should get it, and you'd kind of wait to see that person get it, and then and then you would f- we would just fight about who. I remember getting out a tape measure and like measuring like who was actually the closest to the phone, who should have in fact. Anyway, so I had arguments. I understand. There's like there's some brokenness in relationship with. Roommates. Others, it could be your biological family. Another, it could be spiritual family. Your spiritual. Family. It's often our closest relationship that can be the most difficult. Some people leave churches um, over relational brokenness. Bitterness builds up, offense builds up, and they leave churches. People sometimes write off their biological families. Malachi ten. Uh, verse, excuse me, Malachi 2 verse 10 says that it's God's will that we would be faithful to each other, that we would, we would walk in covenantal wholeness, shalom with one another. And this goes well beyond just uh, dealing with one another and like not, you know, not slapping them in the face or getting angry, but you would live to what, again, what would be called a covenantal order or what the Old Testament would, uh, would mean by shalom, this Hebrew word shalom, which means peace and prosperity and joy, that the community is held together by a deep, strong spirit of, of covenant. It means that God wants us to be the kind of community that walks, that lives with promises to one another, that we're not isolated individuals, but we belong to one another. And that we are, we are bound by promises. We are bound by, by covenant. This is the total opposite. I know this is sound, you look at me strange. This is a total opposite of our, uh, of basically our American society as a whole that is disordered, narcissistic, and self-indulgent. It doesn't live by uh, covenantal order. It, covenant is replaced by individual des- desires and emotional and, and physical impulse and promises to one another are quickly unraveled and all that's left are the individual strands of self-gratification. And there's this Hebrew word that goes all throughout 
uh, Malachi 2, this word bagad, which, is, which means to deal treacherously with one another. So God's very upset and, and is really saying, you're dealing treacherously with one another. And now treach- when we think about that word, we think about like this, 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 this crazy betrayal and this, you know, maybe we murdered someone or assaulted someone to deal treacherously with someone. But what it really means is to break a promise. It means to like, um, it's to not hold up this covenant that we have with one another. And there are three reasons he tells us to, teaches us to not be faithless to one another. One is that we have one father. That when we betray a trust, we betray the family of God. We deceive our own flesh and we we dishonor our own father. That we have one father in heaven. And the way that we treat other people God's saying, that's the way, I, the way that you treat your brother, I receive that that is the way that you treat me. So God says through the Apostle John things like this in, in 1 John 4. He says, how can you say that you love God who you don't see when you hate your brother who you do see? The answer is, according to the way God receives it, is you can't. That he sees it the same. So you have one father. Secondly, you have one creator. If I break my uh, relationship with you, I act as though you and I are accountable to do different creators. Like, you know, God, I want you to treat me this way, so I want you to be okay with me if I break covenant with my brother, but I don't want you to allow him to break covenant with me. He's saying that we have one creator. And then it said, thirdly, it profanes the covenant of our fathers. In other words, we portray this covenant that God has that he passed down to Abraham that was fulfilled in Jesus and now belongs to the church, that when we act faithlessly toward one another, we act as though God is unworthy and worthless to us. That's what he means. He takes us very seriously. And that's why we take community groups very seriously because we want to work out what does it look like to one another because that's what God wants to live in. He doesn't just want us to show up at the same meeting together, but he wants us to experience this shalom, this wholeness, walking in covenantal love with one another. And then he moves on into verses 11 through 12, and he speaks about, he moves on from general relationships, and he gets into uh, really what the heart of marriage is and, and speaks against marrying an unbeliever. And then he talks about the issue of divorce. God regards this, both of these, as being faithless and breaking off and being disobedient to his cover. He calls it an abomination. He actually says it's profaning the sanctuary of God, or in other words, profaning the holiness of God. So when we, when we uh, marry uh, someone who's not a believer or we seek out a divorce, we are saying something about the holiness of God. We are disdaining the holiness of God, the otherness of God when we do that. Why is it? Why is that such a big deal? I mean, doesn't God care about my personal happiness? Doesn't he want me to be happy? Doesn't he want me to be fulfilled in this marriage? I, I mean, I'm, I'm happy when I'm around this person. I know that, you know, they, they don't really go to church or anything like that. They don't really believe in God, but doesn't God want that? Or this marriage doesn't make me happy anymore. Why would God not want me to be happy? Well, to understand what God says about divorce and marrying an unbeliever, why that's important and why it's, it's a blessing to you, you have to understand what the essence of marriage is, is in the first place. The essence, essence of something is its fundamental nature or what it is at its core. So if I was to ask you, you know, hey, what's the essence of a baseball player? 
And your answer was, well, you know, baseball players are, are, are those guys who wear uniforms. Well, that's true. They, are, they do wear uniforms, but, you know, so do football players and so do police officers and so do... So it's not really the essence. It's true that they wear uh, uniforms, but that's not really the essence of a baseball player. So what makes marriage a marriage? What is the essence? Well, some will say affection. If a person makes you feel a certain way, so what's important about a marriage are feelings of love. It's chemistry. It's, it's, the, it's the way I feel around him. It's the way I feel around her. That's what makes a marriage very strong, intense affection. But hey, a dog shows affection, right? And if the truth be told, dogs are way better at showing affection than you and I are. Um. They, they, they'll, they, you know, if you ever watched Old Yeller, the, <laughs> you would never show affection like Old Yeller. Dogs show a lot. Of, but, and so, but so, the, you know, affection is a part of marriage. Feeling, feelings of love and chemistry and passion, that's a part of marriage, but that's not the essence of marriage, okay? Other people say, well, it's the essence of marriage is procreation. It's, it's having family, it's having children and that's the essence of marriage. But hey, rabbits procreate, right? They have offspring, but they don't have marriage. Procreation is a part of marriage, but it's not the essence of marriage. Other people say it's about a tax deduction. It's about shared medical insurance. You know, just all, you know, there's, but that's not the essence. It's a part of it. Biblically, marriage is about two people becoming one and imaging and imaging the relationship that Christ has with his church. The essence of marriage is about two people becoming one and imaging the relationship that Christ has with his church. And so Moses writes to Moses writes in the book of Genesis, the verse we all know this. Even if you're not a Christian, you know that you've heard this. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast or cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one. Leave, cleave, become one flesh. And that word cleave literally means to make a covenant, which of course is our Sesame Street word of the day. It is we, we cleave, we covenant. And to be married is to make a covenant with someone that images that is meant to reflect, be a shadow of the relationship that Christ has with the church. You can, be, you can get into some kind of legal agreement that the state authorizes, but the origination of marriage is a man and a woman becoming one that images this relationship that Christ has with the church, of course, and a covenant is not a declaration of present love, but future love. It's not a statement of present feelings, but a promise of future action because covenantal love is an act of self-donation to one another where there's no longer two, but one. Each one not seeking the needs of their own, but seeking the needs of the other. And in that context, sex, among other things, is a, is a vow... Uh, renewing ceremony that demonstrates physically what you're doing with your whole life. So it's, it's physically becoming one, emotionally becoming one, spiritually becoming one. 
So singles, I want you to see why marrying someone, marrying someone who's not moving in the same spiritual direction as you makes it impossible for you to become one. If your center, if the thing about you is I love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, and what it means to be a follower, that's what it means to love God, that's what it means to be a Christian, is to follow him, is to love him with all your heart. And this person yawns, or it, or even worse, ridicule, ridicules that, or isn't a part of that, or is just apathetic toward it, you can never be one. You can never be on the same page. So if to you the essence of marriage is the feelings of, of love and passion, then you, you may say, well, why is this wrong? Well, but when you begin to see that actually marriage is, is meant to image the oneness that Christ is having with his church, then you could see that, no, wait, the, the goal of me being married, the goal of marriage is that I become one with my spouse. And that is impossible to do if you're marrying an unbeliever. My wife and I have been married, will be married 18 years here in a few weeks. And I would say the process of becoming one is difficult. We're both passionate about God, and it's still difficult. It is a hard process because I'm in that marriage, and she's in that marriage. And I can't imagine, I can't imagine raising kids in a marriage where I, Rachel wasn't on the same page spiritually as me. I just couldn't imagine doing it. I don't know how it happens. Um, in fact, my wife said last night, if it wasn't for God, I probably wouldn't even be married to you. And I said, I love you too. And ah, uh... oh, shucks, Rachel. It's true. I mean, it's, it's true. We probably wouldn't be married to each other. When we, when we claim to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, yet we decide to unite ourselves with an unbeliever in the most intimate union on planet Earth that's meant to image this relationship that God has with his church. That's why God says, you profane my name. You profane my name. You, you, it's an attack on my holiness. It's an attack on me when you do that. You're saying, God, you're not to be trusted. Who you are, you, you're worthless to me. He takes this very, very seriously. We, we, we act as though that our emotional drive for human intimacy is more precious than God's holiness and nearness. Now, what this text isn't saying is not saying that, if, uh, that for, it's impossible for an unbelieving spouse to be converted. We've seen it happen. First Peter 3 says that we should live as though if, you're, if you are right now married to someone who's not a Christian, First uh, Peter 3 will charge you to live in such a way to make that happen, to, to like live a holy life and to, and, to, and, and to pray alongside your brothers and sisters so that would happen. And we've seen it happen. So it can happen. It's also not saying that if you are married to an unbeliever that you should get out of that marriage. 500 years after Malachi, there were some believers in Corinth who um, they became, they, be, they got converted, they became Christians and their spouse didn't. And they, and they heard that, oh, you know, you shouldn't be married to an unbeliever. And they got out of those marriages. They, they divorced, they got out. And Paul, you know, hurried up and write a letter and said, no, no, don't do that. Don't get out of that marriage. But stay in that marriage and, and live a life worthy of the gospel and pray that this person comes to Christ. So some of you have become Christians after marrying your spouse, or perhaps your spouse has fallen away from the faith. We want to believe God with you 
that the heart of your spouse would be changed. But if the text is clearly saying that if the choice of marriage partner lies before you, settle in your mind now to never marry anyone does not believe in the God of the Bible with all their heart, mind, soul, or strength, her or his. You're not too old to do this, and you're not too young to do this. You're not too old, meaning like I was, you know, I'm older now and I have fewer choices. And so I can't do this. I can't, you know, I could trust him in the 20s, my 20s. I can't trust him now. You're not too old to make this commitment, and you're not too young. Those of you who are teenagers, I see some teenagers here. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're in this room. You're not too young to make this a commitment. In fact, this is the best time to make this commitment when it's not emotional, because it will get emotional. And sometimes it's, it's too hard. There's too much attachment. Then finally, Malachi turns to this issue, this final instance of relational brokenness, divorce. Um, verse 14, he says, you say, why doesn't he accept my offering? So these people were bringing an offering and God wasn't accepting their offering. He wasn't accepting their worship. Why doesn't he accept my worship? And it says, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. God was a witness at your wedding. He was a witness of your marriage. It wasn't just the maid of honor. It just wasn't the best man who signed the certificate. God was there. To whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. The reason why divorce did not sit well with God is that We've said this already. Marriage is a covenant. Marriage is not rooted in the sand of personal happiness, but the rock-solid covenantal commitment to love, a covenant before God. In fact, the verse says that. It says that Lord was a witness. So when I said, I, Brian, you know, I, Brian, take you, Rachel, uh, to be my wife, I promised in covenant before God and all these witnesses to be your loving, faithful husband as long as we both shall live. You see, marriage is not just some human agreement. It's not something that just gets authorized um, by the state. Um, God is there. God is, God is a part of it. And God is not some passive bystander. In fact, he's saying, I've seen this. I, I affirm this. I bestow upon this covenant my presence. And i giving this marriage the dignity of imaging something of my covenant that I have with the church. We know this from Ephesians 5. So it's, you know, we know Ephesians 5, you know, husbands should love their wives as Christ loved the church. We know that. That's what, it, that's what it's pointing to. But we get this pointer too in verse 16. God calls himself the God of Israel, which isn't a mistake. It's the only time he refers himself to as the God of Israel in all of Malachi. And the reason why he's, he's saying, like, he's saying that the God of Israel, God, Israel is my betrothed. Israel is my wife, is my spouse. I am the God of Israel. And the reason why God hates divorce, and actually that's what some translations say, the NSAB in particular says it, it says God, it says that phrase, God hates divorce, is that it is fundamentally a contradiction of his covenant with his wife, Israel, or you today, we would say the church. Because marriage at its essence is meant to image and meant to reflect and be a pointer. It's meant to be a gospel pointer. So our marriages, if you're married here today, 
the main purpose of your marriage is to be a gospel pointer to the relationship that Christ has with his church. Some of you are like, wish someone would have told me that earlier. I didn't know that. Like, this would it, like that is what it is. Husbands, you are to love, you're meant to represent Jesus to your wife. People should see how you treat your wife and they should see something of Jesus. They should see an image of how Jesus has laid down his life for the church and how the church responds to the love and leadership of Jesus is how a wife honors and respects her husband. So we should see something in our marriages. We should see something of how God relates to us. And so the reason why God's so upset, he's like, it's a contradiction of what marriage is meant to be. Now, let me just add some footnotes here really quick. The Bible does give grounds as a concession for divorce. The Bible gives grounds for divorce as a concession in extreme circumstances. But we have to know that that, that divorce, it's not like changing your wardrobe. You know, it's not like, oh, I don't like this wardrobe anymore, so I'm going to get a new wardrobe. It's more like an, an amputation of a limb, right? So if you go to the doctor, you know, you, you know if you wake up, you're, you know, you're, you're not feeling well. You go to the doctor, and all of a sudden, they're like, like, hey, what's the prognosis, doc? Well, we need to amputate your arm. You're like, whoa, hold on a second here. Wait, I just got a cold. What do you mean amputate my arm? Like, why do you have to amputate my arm? It's kind of an extreme action. You know, you probably get a second opinion. Is there anything I can do? Even if you really did need to amputate your arm, you'd probably do everything you possibly could, physical therapy, drug, anything, to not have to amputate the arm. And we need to treat, we need to see it that way. That this is an extreme thing, only done in extreme circumstances. And sometimes it is necessary to to amputate the arm to save the whole body. And it may be that's a situation you have been or are in, but you, you have to know those are extreme and you need to get lots of wisdom and advice and community around you in that. But it's a very, very serious thing that God is saying this is a contradiction of what marriage is all about. Now, this is a great opportunity in the message to tell you about the grace of God, which I'm going to conclude with. My hope, our hope as elders, is that Jubilee Church would be a place of hope, would be a place of grace and love and restoration for you, regardless of whatever your past is. Um, we would hope that this would be a place of restoration for you. If you've been divorced, we, we would hope that this would be a place of restoration for you, regardless of the reason why you got divorced. Now, it may be a place of conviction for you. And what I mean by that is you may look at how someone lives and you may be convicted by the way they live because you realize you're not living that way. Or you may hear something in community group or you may hear something on Sunday morning. You may read something in your Bible and you may be convicted by that. But I want you to know that you are not condemned. And I want to explain the difference. And this is going to be very important, especially in a message like this that may land on you heavy. Conviction comes from God and it highlights something specific in your life that God's not happy with because it's hurting you. He's not happy with it because it's hurting you, not because he hates you, but because it's hurting you. Condemnation comes from Satan and it's an attack on your whole person. 
So it's not just that you've done something wrong, but you are wrong. The whole, uh, the whole, you as a person are wrong. So what oftentimes, what happens is that the Holy Spirit will convict you in an area of your life to bring freedom. You just need to know that Satan tracks the Holy Spirit very, very closely. And after the Holy Spirit convicts, Satan condemns. Holy Spirit convicts, Satan condemns. So the reason why it's, and that's why we're going to talk about repentance here in a second. The reason why repentance is, so when you are convicted of something and you don't repent, you leave your you leave yourself open for the, you keep something in darkness. You, you, you don't confess what God says is true and you allow the enemy to condemn you. When, you. when you repent of something that God highlights in your life that's wrong, it's a good thing. It's a life-giving thing. You repent and God is faithful and just to purify you from all unrighteousness. You remove your sin as far as the east is from the west. He's wanting to bless you. He's not wanting to hurt you. He's not, you know, drop and give me 20 sergeant drill sergeant guy. He wants to bring blessing in your life. There's something in your life that's hurting you. He convicts you of that. He brings a pain in your life. He highlights something, not because he hates you, because he, something's hurting you. But, the, but the, the, the enemy of your soul comes along and condemns you. And he doesn't just say what you've done is wrong. He says you are wrong. And if you're not in the practice of repenting, You'll, 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 be, you'll find it very difficult to understand the difference or discern the difference between condemnation and conviction. And anything that is convicting will feel like condemnation to you. That, that's true if you've never repented before. So if you're not a Christian, if you've never uh, confessed your sin before God, say, God, you are God and I'm not, and I'm a terrible leader of my life, and I want to re- turn from doing things my own way, and I want to trust you, that is That is repentance. Condemnation comes from Satan that says you are wrong. Or if you're a Christian and you don't repent very regularly, you know, you, you, you repented in 1983 or, you know, 2004 one time or whatever it is, you don't make a practice of repenting. You leave the door open. You leave the door, you leave the door wide open for condemnation. So many of today, as I'm talking, Maybe I've talked about divorce and you've been divorced and you have felt, you've not just said that, you've not just felt maybe you've done something wrong. What you feel is I am wrong. I just want you to know that that's not from, that's not my heart and that's certainly not from God. It's from the devil and he wants to condemn you. He wants to keep you away from life. It's God who wants to bring you to life and the key to making that happen is that you repent. And then in this area of divorce specifically, I want you to know without removing any how, how serious the issue is and, and that it should be revoid, avoided at all costs, I just want you to know that grace and restoration are always on the table. Think about David and Bathsheba. It starts off with, you know, David's eyeing her from a distance and he goes to her and he sleeps with her. The Bible's very clear that he goes and commits adultery, he sleeps with her. And then to cover it all up, so he had, they have a, a, she becomes pregnant, and to cover it all up, he has her husband killed, and then he marries her. I mean, he like break, he's 10 for 10 for breaking commandments, like all in like one afternoon, basically. And now God took this very, very seriously, and David did experience consequences for his actions. 
And when we willfully disobey God, there's a, there's a consequence to that. But I want you to know that ultimately David repented and God restored him. And in fact, it's through this relationship with Bathsheba that Solomon was born, who was not only blessed as the wisest person ever, but it was the line through whom Jesus Christ, our Savior, was born. And I just want you to know the grace of God is unbelievable. His arm is not too short to save. And regardless of wherever you're at and whatever you've done, that grace and mercy is available to you if you're willing to humble yourself. God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. The proud is anyone who thinks he or she knows better than God, that you are self-sufficient and God is not to be trusted. God is a benevolent father. He wants to bless every person in the world. He wants to bless you. He wants to bless you more than you could possibly imagine. Corinthians, Paul writes that no eye has ever seen, no ear has ever heard, no mind has ever imagined the things that God has laid up for us. He has amazing things for you if you're willing to pray. And maybe you're not experiencing blessing in your life. You're not experiencing renewal because of this relational issue. You are tempted in one of those three ways. Maybe right now you are tempted to divorce your spouse. And you may not actually leave. You may just kind of check out emotionally, withhold physical contact. You may do other things to check out of the marriage. The goal of marriage is that you would become one, physically, emotionally, spiritually. That you would image, that you would image the relationship that God has with his church. Or maybe it's you're tempted to marry an unbeliever. Choices are too few. This, I like how he makes me feel. I like how she makes me feel. This seems right. You know, that's your temptation. Maybe that's where you need to repent. Or, or maybe it's just, it's just a garden variety relationship. You're just holding a grudge against someone. You're not, you're not living in the shalom. You're not leave it, living in the good of this covenantal order of peace and wholeness. So here's what I want to do. I want to, you can stay seated. If the band could go ahead and come up. I want, to, I want to pray for us. Go ahead and bow your head if you'd like. If you're just tempted into any one of those three areas, would, I just want to pray for you specifically. Would you just not by name, but I just want to pray here, and I just want you to say, yeah, that's me. Would you just raise your hand? If you want the blessing of God, you're like, man, one of those three things I'm experiencing, yeah, general, I feel tempted in this area. I feel tempted to leave a friendship. I feel tempted to divorce. I feel tempted. God, I just thank you for this opportunity to return to you. God, well, you're not bound by anything, but out of sheer grace, you loved us and chased us and died for us. God, I just pray that the eyes of our hearts would be opened, be enlightened, so that we could see your goodness and trust you all the days of our life. And God, where we are walking in relational brokenness and disobedience, God, I just pray for grace and mercy to come to those, God, who said today, I want something different. Lord, we believe your promises that when we repent, you restore us. The enemy is going to lie to us. The enemy is going to lie to you, saying, you know, nothing really happened. God's against you. It's not true. It's not true. It's not true. 
God loves you. He's for you. He wants to bless you. God, we repent of our lack of faith. We want to trust you. We want blessing. We want renewal to come to. We want the freedom of knowing that we don't have to figure it all out, but we can trust you. We can trust you to lead us and guide us. Pray these things in your name. Amen. I want you to stand. We're going to worship. Just want to encourage you that even as we worship, to continue just to confess to God where you're putting up a barrier to his blessing. And maybe you might want to receive specific prayer. This would be some people, some pastors, some leaders who would love to pray with you after the service if you'd want prayer. But let's turn our attention to our great Lord, our, our Savior, Jesus Christ.